Exodus 20 at verse 15. This is, once again, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Hear it, dear friends. You shall not steal. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. Oh God, open our eyes that we would be able to see wondrous things from your law. Grant to us tonight, once again, your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. And Lord God, give us ears to hear what you would say to your church. And all for Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, once again, we come to one of the commands where we might be tempted to think, all is well. Or perhaps, if not quite that much of a gold standard self-congratulatory pat on the back, we might think, well, I know I've transgressed this law, this Eighth Commandment, but only to a minor extent, a fairly minor extent. I've never, I've never robbed a man at gunpoint. I've never embezzled, so I'm generally clear of any violation here. You know, that's the old joke, or at least the old irony when doing evangelism. You, you approach someone on the street and you ask them if they think they're a good person. Almost everyone says yes. You ask them by what standard they think they're a good person, and you might even, if there's any sort of residual Western cultural sensibilities, you might be able to say, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, yeah, 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 the Ten Commandments, yes. And you begin to walk them through the Ten Commandments, and they see their own violation of it as you walk them through one by one, and eventually they get frustrated, and they object, well, no one's perfect, but I'm not truly awful like some other people. It's not like I'm Hitler or something like that. And that's often the instinct of the human heart, a defensive human heart, when we hold ourselves up against the the searching light of each of these ten commands. We we, we came to the sixth commandment a few weeks ago, and we we found the instincts of hatred and murder percolating in every human heart. We came to the seventh commandment last week, and we find the seeds of adultery nursed by our discontentment and sin nestled away in the crevices of our heart. Sixth commandment, but at least I'm not Hitler. Seventh commandment, at least I'm not as bad as Hugh Hefner. At least I'm I'm not some greedy, miserly Wall Street tycoon when I come here to the eighth commandment. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really shot. I'm not really a murderer, an adulterer, or a thief. Now, I think of Bernie Madoff some years ago. He defrauded people out of $50 billion. He got 150 years of jail time. That's what he deserves. Even more recently, Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX Infamy, recently convicted of at least seven counts of fraud and conspiracy, swindling $10 billion from thousands of customers and investors in order to fund outside ventures, political donations and purchases of luxury real estate. He's facing decades in prison once he's sentenced. We think that's justice. No way, I'm a thief. Look at these guys, $50 billion, $10 billion. Indeed, we can turn and find plenty of other similar examples from history. And even sermonic and theological support that might strengthen some sense of our own self-justification. Some of our heroes, men like Luther and Calvin, they had some strong things to say about fraudulent operators like this. Phil Riken points this out in his Exodus commentary. Martin Luther identified certain men of his day like this. There are these gentlemen swindlers or big operators. Far from being picklocks, pickpockets, or sneak thieves who loot a cash box, they sit in office chairs and are called great lords and honorable, good citizens. And yet with a great show of legality, 
they rob and steal. Close quote. That was Martin Luther. John Calvin said, It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but also those who seek gain from the loss of others, accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. Close quote. See, we, hear, we might say, see, they're talking about major con artists. Large corporations stealing from the general public, keeping some of their transactions off the books, hiding their losses in offshore accounts, manipulating securities by providing false information. Even the federal government, with its huge bureaucracy, the government commits theft on a national scale by wasting public money and by accumulating debt without really ever planning to repay it. As one commentator put it, deficit spending is really a way of stealing from future citizens. We hear that and we think, see, see, that's the kind of thing that the Eighth Commandment has in mind. Except our heroes have something to say here too. Calvin said, let us remember that all those arts whereby we acquire the possessions and money of our neighbors, when such devices depart from sincere affection to a desire to cheat and in some manner to harm, these are to be considered as thefts. Similarly, Luther said that we break the Eighth Commandment whenever we, he said this, take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. Close quote. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Cecil Myers describes a picture by Norman Rockwell. This is timely. Now, this well-known painting, it shows a woman buying a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. Now, the turkey is being weighed on the scale to determine the price. And behind the counter is the happy butcher with his apron stretched tightly over his good-sized belly and a pencil tucked behind one ear. Now, this customer appears to be a kindly grandmother sort of lady. Now, like the booker, b butcher, she's smiling. She looks pleased. The two of them exchange a knowing smile as if they're sharing a joke. But the joke is really on them because the painting shows what they're both secretly doing. You see, the butcher is pleased because he's pressing the scale down with his big fat thumb, making the turkey heavier, raising the overall price. Now, at the same time, the woman on her side of the counter is pushing the scale up with her forefinger, artificially lessening the weight of the turkey and getting a lesser price. And the reason both of them look so happy is that neither is aware of what the other is up to. Now, the artist, Norman Rockwell, makes it all seem well and good and charming, something Americans might chuckle at. But what the butcher and his customer were doing was violating the Eighth Commandment. Cecil Myers says this in his book, Both the butcher and the lovely lady would resent being called thieves. The lovely lady would never rob a bank or steal a car. Imagine your grandmother doing such a thing. The butcher would be indignant if anyone accused him of stealing. And if a customer gave him a bad check, he would call the police. But neither the lady nor the butcher saw anything wrong with a little deception. They would make a few cents for one or save a few cents for the other, close quote. Ah, now see, here, here's where we start to perhaps feel a little uncomfortable and get into potentially familiar territory. Filling in time cards for pay when we're not really there. Being at the workplace, yes, but but lazily being idle, wasting time, not giving our sincere or best labor for our employer, making illegitimate disability claims, 
insurance fraud, intellectual property theft and copyright infringements, downsizing the workforce, extending hours but not extending pay and still expecting the same employee output, helping ourselves to a few office supplies here and there, such that one hotel a few years ago reported, one, one hotel reported having to replace in one year 38,000 spoons, 355 coffee pots, and over 100 Bibles. All of these things, friends, are to greater and lesser degrees violations of the Eighth Commandment. Now, you and I might think of theft as something as straightforward as robbing a bank, but so much of what rightly constitutes theft falls into what Scott Adams calls the weasel zone. Scott Adams is the creator of the well-known Dilbert comic strips, and he says the weasel zone is that gigantic gray area between good moral behavior on the one side and outright felonious activities on the other side. Now, there's a lot of things that aren't good moral behavior, but they won't necessarily land you in federal prison either. The weasel zone. And really, as is the case with so many of these Ten Commandments, the root of our problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember when God placed our first parents in Eden? He gave them work to do, recall? Genesis 1, 20, verse 28. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to have dominion over the animals, over the creatures. Chapter 2, verse 15. God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, and told him to work it and to keep it or to dress it and to keep it. As one commentator said, human beings were given a sacred trust, a stewardship from Almighty God as they were entrusted with creation. They were to steward it. They were to possess the world and use it as stewards with a duty of care under the lordship of God who would regulate how they used material things. We are given much to enjoy, and it's ours truly. And yet only and always secondarily and derivatively ours. It's always, ultimately, and first, God's. And we are to use what he gives as stewards accountable to him. Close quote. But we know, sadly, how the story unfolded. Man was supposed to use things, material things, in the service of the glory of God. You've heard the sort of children's sermon illustration. It's a little... It's a little cutesy and simplistic, but I think it's generally right. We were meant to trust God and use things, but instead we trust things and try to use God. We've got the whole thing inverted, grossly so. So it was with Adam. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Scripture says they saw that the fruit was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make, for making one wise. And they did what? They took it and they ate. They took that which was forbidden. Part of the very first sin included an act of theft, a violation of the Eighth Commandment, do you see? As many theologians will point out, in the taking of the fruit, Adam and Eve were doing more than just taking fruit. Right? It wasn't just a snack that they wanted, you understand? It was what the fruit symbolized. That's what they wanted. The fruit symbolized what God had, and they weren't permitted to seize it, but they wanted it. God, God had set a boundary, you see. They didn't like the boundary. 
God had determined what was good and right for life under him in Eden, in paradise. But they decided they didn't care for God to set that determination, that boundary. That right belonged to God, you see, to determine how the moral order of the universe should operate. And Adam and Eve said, no. We'll decide what we should know about good and evil. Thank you very much. And they took the fruit, plunged the human race, and even creation itself into a state of sin and misery. So that at the base level, in one sense, at the base level of all sin is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Theft is fundamentally a discontentment with God's provision and his providence. God has given me thus. God has set the bounds of my life in this way. God has provided me thus and such. It's not enough for me. I want more. I want it differently. Our life under God is essentially a call to stewardship, much as it was with our first parents, Adam and Eve. God says, take what I've given you. Take it contentedly. Use it well for your good and my glory. And we warp and we pervert our stewardship by unlawfully grabbing that which is not ours in order to to leverage a more comfortable circumstance, don't we? You remember what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. That's not to say that if your life is miserable, too bad, you just need to deal with it, and you're not allowed to do anything to fix it. No. But it is to say that there are lawful and unlawful means by which to facilitate change. If you are financially strapped and cannot pay your bills, it may be wise to take a new job that pays more, and that would be a favorable change to your situation and a lawful thing to do. You may not, however, steal from your wealthy neighbor who has plenty of cash to spare. So there's a lawful method to help, to change your situation, but there's also unlawful methods. And one of the things I hope we've seen as we've been studying through all these Ten Commandments is that all sin is interconnected. It's all interwoven. Rarely is it the case that we are breaking a command and it's only that one single command that's being violated. They're all connected. We, we commit adultery against our spouse and we are breaking the seventh command, yes, but also breaking the ninth command because we've spoken untruthfully about the promises of fidelity that we've made. We are breaking the third command because most of us probably took marriage vows in God's name and now we soil that vow with our actions and we're in violation of the eighth commandment because we have robbed and denied our spouse the trust, the fidelity, and the affection which he or she is due. That's just one example. Really, when we boil it down, there's a sense in which all sin is idolatry. All sin is a lie or believing a lie. All sin is a kind of blasphemy against the God of all holiness, goodness, and truth. All sin is greed or theft because it is an unlawful action against God's instructions to get something that I want, whether it's tangible or intangible, such as lying in order to get a more advantageous situation. Lying to get something that I want when I'm not entitled to have it. Remember how we understand the two tables of the law? Commands 1 through 4. That's our our duty towards God, broadly speaking. Commandments 1 through 4. 
And then commandments 5 through 10, the second table, that's our duty toward our neighbor. And the Lord Jesus said as much when he summarized the law in two broad commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we sin, in essence, we rob God or we rob our neighbor or sometimes both the honor that he is due. And so when we put it that way, we really are thieves after all at a fundamental level. But we're not left without hope. Praise God, the good news is always good. We are never left without hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the time remaining, I'd like for us to study the Eighth Commandment with the the same framework that our catechism gives us, sins forbidden and duties required, negative and then positive. Negative aspects of this command and positive aspects of this command. So the command of God for the first point, what God says, what sins he has forbidden, But then secondly, the grace of God. The second point, the grace of God in Christ leads to transformed hearts. What are positive actions that we should be taking? Attitudes that we should be cultivating in light of new hearts with the Eighth Commandment as our basis. So let's think along those lines together in the time remaining. Let's think first of all all, about the command of God. The command of God. The word for stealing here in Exodus 20 verse 15 It simply means to take something that does not belong to you. More technically, to steal is to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. We are forbidden from doing that. Now, certainly petty theft is in view here, shoplifting from the supermarket, etc. But the implications and, and the reach of the Eighth Commandment is far broader than that, as we've already mentioned. I like how one man put it. Whenever we seek to line our pockets at the expense of others, we stand under condemnation of the Eighth Commandment at the expense of others, whether it's their integrity that we owe them, whether it's their time, whether it's their trust in us, whether it's their actual money, their actual property, you name it. The Old Testament scriptures are abundantly clear on this. There's all kinds of statutes and case laws about integrity and fairness in the giving of a loan, for example, Rules condemning unjust interest, what older Bible translations would call usury. Exodus 22, verse 25, here's what God tells Israel. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now it's worth taking a moment, just as a brief aside, to talk about debts and loan and interest. Sometimes there's misunderstanding at this point. People think that the Bible, some people might think that the Bible forbids any kind of loan or any kind of taking on of debt in which case any of our folks who work in the banking industry are in loads of trouble. But actually what the scriptures condemn is contracting an unnecessary or an unthinking debt. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. It is ungodly to take on a debt that we cannot repay or have no intention of repaying. And the scriptures condemn what we might call predatory interest. Ezekiel 22, verse 12. 
you take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But you have forgotten me, declares the Lord. We just read a few seconds ago from Exodus 22, verse 25. You heard there, I hope, God's concern for the poor debtor. What God said back there, Exodus 22, verse 25, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? Give him his cloak back before nightfall. It's all he has to keep warm. Show him mercy. When we get right down to it, God, in the scripture, has a lot of harsh words to say against extortion or exploitation. Those are prohibitions that are derived from these Eighth Commandment principles. Put another way, there's a warning against us as his redeemed people. There's a warning against us having a calloused personal indifference toward those in dire situations. Meanwhile, we work toward acquiring more of the almighty dollar. Think of recent history, what we might call predatory mortgages, given to people who could not afford them simply so that the lender might profit. Think about exorbitant interest rates on so-called payday loans, loan sharks, and cash advance establishments that you and I both know tend to prey on the poorest of the poor, giving them the upfront cash for the needs of today, only to make their financial danger worse and worse, placing them into a hole that they cannot crawl out of. As one commentator put it, God's people are to have an eye to the vulnerabilities of the borrower, not just to the profit margin of the lender. You shall not steal. Close quote. Think about Amos, chapter 8, verse 5. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be over, that we may offer wheat for sale, and we may make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? You see what Israel's saying there, what Amos is condemning them for? Let's get this Sabbath day over with so we can get back to defrauding the vulnerable and lining our pockets. Enough of God's holy day. Proverbs 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. There's that Norman Rockwell painting in mind. Do we just wink and chuckle at such a notion, this notion of dishonesty, dishonest gain because everybody else is doing it? Or try Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 8, excuse me, Proverbs 18, verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Or later on, the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We hinted at some of these things earlier. In our business, are we known as those who deal and pay and charge honestly, fairly, and consistently? Business owners, do, do we expect more work and more productivity, but not increasing the wages for the laborers, further padding the, mo- the profit margins? Are, are we robbing others 
of their fourth commandment day of rest by having them work for us in a capacity that is not one of necessity or mercy. What's our attitude toward work? Are we lazy? Slothful? Are we merely man-pleasers? Happily, happily taking our employer's money, but knowing deep down that this wasn't an honest day's work that I just put in. We could go on with examples and applications. Scripture talks about man-stealing, malicious lawsuits, moving property, boundaries. We, we could talk about gambling. All things, all things rooted in theft and greed, which aim to leverage our gain at the expense of someone else's loss. All of it, all of it, is hit square in the face with the word of God. Thou shalt not steal. Now, we are belaboring the point a bit, I grant you, but I hope that this study of the Eighth Commandment is helping us see that God is greatly concerned with matters of integrity and honesty, with compassion for the poor, that that God has an eye toward justice and fairness in the ways that we make use of material things, that all of it, all of it belongs under this Eighth Commandment banner. So that's the first thing that we need to see, the command of God. But then secondly, let's think about the grace of God, the grace of God. See, that's the glorious thing about God's grace. It transforms hearts. It changes sinners. God, by the Holy Spirit, really does grow people in grace, holiness, goodness, and Christ-likeness. And while greed and theft are condemned, the transformed heart is able to show forth the flip side of theft, generosity. How little do I have to do in order to meet the minimum requirements of my obligation is not the mindset to have at all. Jesus had something to say about that kind of mindset, didn't he? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Remember what Jesus said regarding the Pharisees and the Sabbath? How they entirely missed the point? The Sabbath is a day to honor God, yes, but it is God's gift to man. It was made for man's good. It was made for man's refreshment. Not something that existed and then God made man and plopped him into the Sabbath and fashioned up some rules just so he had something to do. No. What's the bare minimum that I have to do? What's the bare minimum that I have to do so that my wife will be convinced that I love her and she'll get off my back. That's a jolly good attitude. No. The redeemed heart, the soul captivated and transformed by God's grace, finds life and liberty in the ways of God. And so you see there's a glad giving over, a glad giving over of himself into God's ways and into God's commands. Rather than stealing a kind of perverse hoarding of other people's things that are not ours, a a miserly stinginess. God, in the gospel of his Son, frees us to keep the spirit of the Eighth Commandment in entirely the opposite way. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 28? How should the redeemed man live? The redeemed woman, the redeemed child. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal 
but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, the redeemed man has found the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the pearl of great price. There is no costlier treasure. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. And so he sells everything. And he goes and he buys that field so that he may have that treasure. The, the, the field, the corner of that field where that treasure is buried. He goes, I'll take the whole field to make sure that I have it. Matthew 13, verse 44. So that he may have Christ. And in light of Christ, everything else falls into place. God, in the gospel of his Son, frees us so that we no longer live for self. Money is not our God. Christ is our God. Money and possessions and time, they can be used and they can be leveraged generously in service of the king's glory. This is not some kind of godless Marxism. No, no. The Westminster Larger Catechism is quite clear that people have personal property. Yes. It's just that in the gospel, property and money and possessions need not be the driving force in one's life. Quite the contrary. According to Paul in Ephesians 4, the redeemed thief now makes money so that he can give it away, making more than is necessary so that he has enough to share to anyone who is in need. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 12, 15 and following? One's life does not consist in the abundance of things. Now there's a word. What a word we need for this materialistic, grossly self-centered culture in which we live, our glutted world of materialism. God in his grace enables us to hold all things loosely. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As one man said, when grace breaks in, we cease to live for our possessions, for earthly treasure, because we've found infinitely more satisfying treasure in Jesus Christ. Now, the classic example, of course, is Zacchaeus in Luke 19, which we read earlier. Working as a Roman tax collector, he knowingly extorted citizens for more money than was necessary, and he lined his pockets with the difference. Dishonest gain, theft, Eighth Commandment violation. And then one day, having met the Lord Jesus Christ for himself, Zacchaeus has changed. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I will restore it fourfold. Fourfold restitution. Fourfold restoration. And now the commentators will point out that in Exodus 22, verse 1, fourfold restoration was required of those who stole livestock. So Zacchaeus has a, an Old Testament principle in view here, but it's narrowly applying to life, livestock there in Exodus chapter 22. According to Leviticus 5, verse 16, only 20% restitution was required of those who were guilty of fraud. Do you see what Zacchaeus is doing and what he's saying? I will voluntarily take a more severe penalty. And there's an almost reckless generosity that he exhibits as he seeks to make amends for his past sins. 
As one man said, now instead of the sin forbidden in the Eighth Commandment that was so characteristic of Zacchaeus, he models the generosity to which the Eighth Commandment calls us, close quote. And the only thing that produces this characteristic in the heart of sinful men and women, the only thing that produces this kind of almost reckless generosity is the grace of Jesus Christ. Because he has been so generous with us, we too might be generous saints. And he has been generous, has he not? Not so much with money or possessions, but the costliest thing of all, his very self. One man pointed out what a remarkable thing it is. In Gethsemane, Jesus says to his arresting party in Matthew 26, Why do you come out against me with swords and clubs as against a robber, a thief, an eighth commandment breaker? And then Matthew uses the same word in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 27, to tell us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. You see, Christ was treated as, identified with, breakers of the Eighth Commandment. But he never, 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 not once committed any sin. Never was he in breach of the Eighth Commandment, in the slightest. It is we who stand condemned with our our thieving actions and our miserly hearts. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless lamb of God was he, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. You shall not steal, says God's holy law. And there, as one commentator put it, there is Christ our Savior, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, treated like the thief he was not, that he might accomplish forgiveness and pay the penalty for the thieves that we are. Close quote. And so, brothers and sisters, because God has dealt so mercifully and generously with us by his grace, we are free to likewise deal mercifully and live generously with others. We have found the pearl of great price. We have found the costliest treasure. The Lord has dealt with us, hasn't he? He's dealt with us such that his goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Our cup runneth over. God's grace towards us cannot even be contained in the vessel. You see the imagery that the psalmist is painting there? I've got this flagon and there's too much liquid. It's running over. That's how much God's grace and mercy is pursuing me. I can't contain it. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. There is superabundance of grace and superabundance of provision for all of our needs in Christ. Because of that, we need not be stingy any longer. Quite the opposite of theft. We are freed to be generous. But how much will God provide? Well, if Jesus is to be believed... And he is. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. See here, this isn't this isn't the lady in the butcher with the with the with the measuring scale. Good measure. No no skimpy measuring cups here. God is not miserly with his grace. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Abounding generosity of his grace and provision for us. That's our Father. 
and ransomed and adopted in Christ, we, his children, might be like him too. Praise him for it. Praise God for the ministry of the Eighth Commandment to us tonight. Let's all pray. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Would you seal these truths and these gospel graces to our souls and to our hearts for our everlasting good and for your everlasting glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.